0: I drove here this morning. Did most of you drive here this morning? Can't really get around Tulsa without a car. (laughs) If you drive a car, you've probably had the experience of being pulled over at least once in your life for something like speeding, or maybe having a headlight out, or forgetting a turn signal, maybe rolling through a stop sign. When University of California professor was stopped by police on his way home, He realized gradually it was more than one of those casual pullovers that we've all experienced. There was no talk of speeding. His headlights were both working, and he had used his turn signals. But he started getting really nervous when the two officers asked, What race are you? He looked them straight in the eye, and he said, The human race, sirs. (laughs) The human race. Thanks for getting the joke. (laughs) There's a lot of discussion and debate out there right now about immigration. It's an election year. About Obama's executive action allowing children who came to this country without proper, proper documentation to work legally, get driver's licenses, and not live in fear of immediate deportation. And there's a lot of talk about this spring's recent Supreme Court ruling on Arizona's Senate Bill 1070. The debates aren't really a surprise because it is an election year. It's hard to know who's saying something because they believe it or are they saying it just because they want to get elected or reelected? It's also not unusual because when times are tough, politicians traditionally target unpopular ethnic and racial minorities. For example, it was the economic insecurity of the Great Depression which triggered the Mexican repatriation which was enforced between 1929 and 1939. In one decade, 500,000 people of Mexican descent were forced or pressured to leave the United States without due process or representation. So I've told you just a little bit about it. Have any of you heard of the Mexican repatriation? Probably not. Neither had I. Because it's left out of most of our American history textbooks, is what I've learned, But Oklahoma, right here, Oklahoma is one of 12 states that lost over half of its Mexican population. And I certainly didn't know, and this will shock you, that 60% of the people deported to Mexico were United States citizens at the time, including their children who were born in the United States. I'm not going to say any more about that today, Mexican repatriation, but it's something to learn about The point I'm making is that the myths and fears, one point I'm making is that the myths and fears about how they take our jobs and drain our social systems is nothing new, nothing new at all. So in this season of political pressure and posturing, I need to start by sharing a few facts about immigration today and about immigrants today. Facts which aren't disputed on either side of the aisle, but which challenge some of the common myths we hear in the popular media, And as you listen to me list these facts, I'd ask that you consider which myths, just internally, I'm not going to call on you, which myths you have previously accepted as facts yourselves. First, one in five people in the United States is Latino or Asian. Together, Latinos and Asians account for approximately 15% of the nation's purchasing power and own approximately 15% of the nation's businesses. Households headed by unauthorized immigrants paid $11.2 billion in state and local taxes in the year 2010. Yes, I did say paid taxes. Non-citizens do not qualify for most welfare programs and tend to use medical services much less frequently than the average citizen, less than half the dollar amount, in fact. In 2010, four and a half million children born in the United States had at least one parent who was an unauthorized immigrant. Given these facts, although Obama's executive action is a step in the right direction, it is not yet the change we need to see, which is that our country would provide a path to citizenship. And although the Supreme Court struck down three provisions of Arizona's Senate Bill 1070, racial profiling still stands as the law of that land. Okay, that's Arizona, but what about Oklahoma now, you might ask me. Well, just a few more facts. More than a quarter of Oklahoma's population growth between 2000 and 2006 was a result of immigrants coming to live, study, and work here in our state In 2010, the purchasing power of Latinos in Oklahoma totaled $6.2 billion, an increase of 763% since 1990. That's in the last 20 years. And in the same year, undocumented residents paid $81.1 million in state and local taxes. So I hope you're not drowning in facts. And that you're starting to see why I think it's so important to separate the facts from the fears, especially now when the face of America and the face of Oklahoma and the face of Tulsa is changing so quickly. For these and many other reasons, our National Association of Congregations, the UUA, took a stand on immigration as a moral issue, and our first Ever Justice GA this past June was not only the first General Assembly I've ever attended, which was exciting. It was a GA focused on immigration as a moral issue, and there are a few people in this room who attended. And it was a GA which will change all future GAs because it was so successful and meaningful for the people who attended. But it's one thing for other people to tell you something matters, even when they're leaders in your religious community, and another thing to find within yourself the place you stand on an issue. So I hope my talk this morning will help you explore internally and find the place you stand. So to help you, accompany you on that journey, I want to tell you personally why immigration matters to me. I'm a first-generation American on my mother's side, and I'm barely a third-generation American on my father's side. Because the arrival of both sides of my family is so recent, I never forget that I came here from somewhere else, that my parents, as Woody said, crossed that river a few generations back. At the turn of the 20th century, my paternal great-grandparents were leaving the pogroms of Eastern Europe behind. And in 1957, my mother was leaving the chaos and trauma of World War II behind. Immigration has mattered to me for a long time. In my early 20s, I studied and trained to be a midwife, or partera, in El Paso, Texas, primarily serving women and families from Mexico. I want to tell you about one transport that I will never forget. A woman was bleeding heavily in labor. A dangerous sign probably meant there was some trouble with the placenta. Because it was faster to drive than to call an ambulance, we helped her into the back seat of my car. I drove from our freestanding birth center in El Paso to a large El Paso City hospital, and I showed the doc's on duty, the chart, and answered their questions and told them how urgent it was, explained the emergency, you know, hospitals take a little time to get their act together. And they did what they had to do, and then they turned us away. They denied her care. So gripping the steering wheel, before cell phones or Google Maps, I made my way across the border back into Juarez to find a clinic, thank heavens, just in time for a life-saving cesarean section. And something else that happened in El Paso that I need to tell you is that I saw helicopters herd people from the sky chasing them into circles and into tall, standing metal cages as if they were an- animals, just as you would herd you know, elephants out on the, in Africa. So immigration matters to me for many reasons, and the reasons, now that I'm in Oklahoma, are multiplying. Right here in Tulsa, I have neighbors who don't dare call the police when there's a theft or worse because they're afraid they'll be deported. They're one of many families. They're just one of many, many families in this city who are easy prey for criminals because of the situation, who take advantage of their fear of law enforcement. And Isabella is the daughter of a friend in, it says, this church, but that church, the other church, (laughs) who came home on her ninth birthday to find out her dad had been deported on that very day. And she hasn't seen her dad for the last four years. So I didn't know much about immigration law or immigration reform when I lived on the border back in the late 80s, but even without studying the intricacies of amnesty and refugee status regulations, the history of race laws, the impact of NAFTA on the Mexican economy or of 9-11 on the American psyche, it was clear to me then, as it is to me now, that immigrants, even without documents, are people. People first, with inherent human rights, deserving dignity, and then citizens. Here's a story of one person then, one man, one immigrant. His name is Jose Antonio Vargas, and he was on the cover of Time magazine earlier this summer. Some of you may have seen it. Like many before him, he's changing the world by telling the truth, his particular truth. Born in the Philippines, his mom sent him to the United States when he was 12 years old so he could have the proverbial better life. He lived with his grandparents in California, learned English by watching (laughs) Frasier, and won the spelling bee in eighth grade by spelling the word indefatigable. He fell in love with journalism in high school, worked for the local paper, and got a job with the Washington Post after graduation. During the 2008 presidential elections, he interviewed Al Gore, rode in Hillary Clinton's plane, and went pheasant hunting with Mike Huckabee. I don't know if that's much of a claim to fame, but he did it. (laughs) And this is a claim to fame. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Virginia Tech Massacre. Rewind a few years during high school, when he was 16, he went to the DMV to get his driver's license. Any American kid would do the same. The woman at the counter took his green card, turned it over, gave it back to him and said, this is a fake, don't ever come back here again. Jose went home that day, told his grandfather what had happened, and found out at 16 that he was what some people still call an illegal when he told his school choir director he wouldn't be able to go on the choir trip to Japan because his family couldn't afford it, the director said they'd find a way to make it work, which is when Jose decided to tell her the truth. It's not about the money, he said. I don't, I don't have the right passport. I'm not supposed to be here. So the choir went to Hawaii instead. Smart lady, huh? <laughs> Jose is enthusiastic. He comes to class and works hard. My job is to help make better citizens of the world, not to know what papers kids have or don't, Miss Denny said. Jose calls Miss Denny and his high school principal and the school superintendent the beginning of his own personal underground railroad. He came out to the world last year and has started an online conversation about what it means to be an American. That's my title, Define American, Jose's definition of an American is, anyone who works hard, who's proud of his country and wants to contribute, who's not a burden on anyone. I'm an American, he says. Is he or isn't he? And who gets to decide? It helps me at this point to remember the definition of who's an American has never been fixed, Who's allowed to be a citizen? The definition of who's allowed to be a citizen has never been fixed. And what is required to become a citizen has always been and continues to be fluid and changing. For example, in 1790, naturalization was reserved for free white persons of good moral character, and citizenship was inherited solely through the father. I don't know how many of us that would disqualify, but many of us right here. In 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, our country decided no people of African descent could ever be citizens, whether slave or free. In 1882, our country passed a law prohibiting Chinese people from becoming citizens in the Chinese Exclusion Act. You're getting the point, but this one's really unbelievable. (laughs) It wasn't until 1924 that the Indian Citizenship Act granted birthright citizenship to indigenous peoples born in the United States. Did you hear that one? Okay, somebody's shaking their head. Good. <laughs> so Mr. Vargas is in a long line of people who've lived here, worked here, raised their families here, and were denied citizenship. When most of those people have said, I'm an American There's no question, right? There's no question. Each of you have a story about what it means to live on this land and in this country, and a story about where you come from. You've heard a little bit about where I come from. I want to share just a little bit more. I am binational and bilingual. I have two passports, as does each of my daughters. We are citizens of France and America. My mother is French but came to this country on the Ethiopian quota. To this day, my mother speaks with a strong accent. I watched my mother study for and pass her citizenship test when I was in high school. Her father, my grandfather, was tortured during World War II and escaped from prison the day before he was to be executed. He was Catholic. My other grandfather is Jewish. His grandmother, my great-grandmother, died on Ellis Island trying to come to this country. I am an American. When I consider the history of citizenship in this country and my own story, I'm struck by how often I take my own citizenship and the rights granted to me totally for granted. It's incredible, really, that it wasn't until 1952 that our laws were changed to clearly state that citizenship shall not be denied or abridged because of race or sex. Citizenship isn't something to be taken for granted. If that's all you take away with you today, that would be a lot. (laughs) Because our democracy is an experiment, an ongoing experiment in government for and by the people. And now when the president is feeling the pressure of people like Mr. Vargas and the riders on the undocumented bus, which you might have read about, it's traveling across the country right now, I think they're in Georgia right now, and others around the country who are refusing to fear and daring to declare our nation's hypocrisy and insist that immigration be legalized, not criminalized. The gift of citizenship that we've been given, I believe, demands that we talk about this issue, debate it, register other people to vote, and vote come November So I'm grateful to Elizabeth for inviting me here to talk about this today, and specifically asking me to talk about this, and that song couldn't have been a better lead-in. One great irony I've noticed is that many of the most actively engaged participants in our democratic process are new citizens and the undocumented. The ones I know are not demoralized, disenchanted, or disillusioned with our system, with our local government, with our state government, with our national government, with the state or world politics. To the contrary, they are so grateful to be here, And they are determined to make a difference. They risk their lives to be here. Which makes me think of Isabel Castillo, another story I'd like to tell you. She is a young woman brought brought from Mexico when she was six years old. Made it through school. Wanted to go to college when all the scholarship books in the college counselor's office said, requirement, U.S. citizen or legal resident, she got a job as a waitress instead. But Isabel was determined to continue her education and eventually found a Mennonite university that accepted undocumented students. She graduated in three and a half years with a degree in social work and then found herself stuck again. She says, I wanted to give back to my community. I wanted to start life and my career in the real world, but I wasn't able to work legally. I had two options. One was to wait for laws to change. The other, as cliched as it might sound, was to be the change I wanted to see. Isabel went to Washington, D.C. for a DREAM Act conference and came back to Harrisonburg, Virginia to start organizing. A first campaign of theirs was to pass a local, just a local resolution in favor of the DREAM Act. She and others worked hard, and eventually, over 30 businesses and hundreds of individuals signed. At the final town council meeting, the vote was a unanimous yes in support of the DREAM Act, a big victory, At that council meeting, Isabel says she kept her face away from the cameras. She didn't want to put her family at risk. But since then, she's decided that the more public she is about her status, the safer she is, actually, and the safer her family is. She says, I remember a point when I was depressed. Our parents risked so much for us, and you wonder if you can give back. You think, I can't work, I can't go to school, I can't help my family, but I know it's not a mistake what my parents did. They risked everything, left everything behind, their culture, their home, and their family. They did this for the sake of a better life for us. My parents are my heroes. She continues, I told the governor of Virginia my story. At first he acted impressed. He said, wow, a 4-0 in college. We need more students like you. Then I said, but I'm undocumented. And the room got quiet. So I asked would you support legislation like the DREAM Act so that students like me can have a future? And he said, no. That's like turning a blind eye to people who've broken the law. And people applauded when he said we have to round up every illegal immigrant and send them back to their home country. Finally, Isabel said, I am an American. Virginia is my home. Now, many people get stuck just where the governor of Virginia is stuck. But isn't that true, you might ask or be thinking? Isn't that like turning a blind eye to people who have broken the law? I'm a law-abiding person, shouldn't everyone be? I mean, the safety and security, and it's true of our nation, depends on respect for the rule of law. Yes, and at times, Laws themselves are unjust. And we, we must have the moral clarity and courage and resolve to change them. Morality and the law are not the same thing. We mustn't confuse them. If you accept that, then how do we know beyond fact-finding, beyond issue analysis and paralysis, when fundamental human rights are being denied rather than protected? which is where it matters most to me that I'm not just a political and an emotional and a spiritual and a psychological, but I'm also a religious human being, where I turn not just to secular but to sacred history and to my community of faith to guide me, where I turn to the words and deeds of prophets, past and present, to help me find my own inner moral compass, not because scripture is the inerrant word of God, but because scripture is full of human stories stories that we've been telling each other since we started telling each other stories. And you know this. The Hebrew and Christian scriptures are full of explicit teachings on how to treat the foreigner, the stranger, the exile, the alien, which makes sense since Exodus is a story about how the people of one nation seek and find freedom in a new land. You with me? Okay. First, if you remember, the Hebrew people migrate to Egypt— to escape famine, they start as refugees, and they become guest workers for several generations until their presence creates a growing dilemma. As guest workers, they provide cheap labor, but as their population steadily increases, they're perceived as a threat to the ruling class, and so are enslaved by the pharaoh. It sounds familiar to me. Does it sound familiar to you? But it's not just the book of Exodus. Exodus. You could read the whole story from Genesis to Revelation as one continuous story of immigration, emigration, and just plain migration, what people have always done on this planet, migrating for food and work and animals. You could read the whole story as a history of refugees seeking political asylum, exile seeking refuge, migrant laborers seeking work, and one tribe of people marrying with another, mixing and changing ethnicity, race, and identity. There's Moses. Remember Moses? whose mother puts him in a basket and sets him afloat in a river. Moses, who's rescued by a woman in another land, who raises him as her own by a foreigner. Moses, who spends the end of his life traveling with a band of migrant laborers and dies before he can cross over a river again into the promised land. And there's Joseph. Do you remember Joseph? Sold into slavery in Egypt, who by his own wits, Reminds me of somebody, somebody I talked about earlier. Becomes so successful, he's made personal advisor and counselor to the pharaoh. Joseph, who spends many years in detention, under arrest, in prison, that not only gains legal status, but is, able, but is able to bring the rest of his family with him to his new homeland. This is not a new story. This is a very, very, very old story. And if you really want to talk about someone who's a political refugee with a mixed cultural heritage, and I think Woody Guthrie would have appreciated this, we could talk about Jesus, who was granted asylum in Egypt when Herod wanted to have him killed, and whose family tree includes Ruth the Moabite, Bathsheba the Hittite, and Tamar and Rahab the Canaanites, all foreigners. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless, said the prophet Isaiah. Many books with one story, many scriptures with one moral. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. There shall be one law for the native and for the alien who resides among you, Such a person is granted the same rights and accepts the same responsibilities as the citizen. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, documented or undocumented, he might have said. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Inherent in the governor of Virginia's position is the assumption that our immigration laws and policies are just, fair, and worth following. But the Indian Removal Act of 1830 resulted in the Trail of Tears. Under that law, 70,000, and that was a law, 70,000 Native Americans were uprooted from their homes and their land at gunpoint. And about 4,000 Cherokees died on the forced march westward. The Fugitive Slave Act Law of 1850 made it a crime to help a slave. Both acts were legal. So I say again to you that morality and law are not the same thing we must not confuse them. As in the civil rights movement, sometimes our own moral compass demands that we disobey the law and create new ones. My family survived in part, and I'm alive today because my grandmother disobeyed the law of the land. She listened carefully, and she studied Hitler's rhetoric She believed Hitler's rhetoric. She decided when she needed to hide her identity. She knew when it was time to move the family in the middle of the night, out of a small city, into the anonymity of a much, much larger one. I'm alive today because my grandmother dared to disobey the law of the land and did not line up in the streets, when the order was proclaimed that all Jews in Paris must wear a yellow star on their clothes. For years, because of my mixed cultural and religious heritage, I was confused about my own identity. Am I American enough? I wondered. Do I belong here? Or where do I belong? Even though I'm white enough not to provoke questions about my status as an American, it's not likely that if a police officer stopped me at a stop sign in Tulsa, he would ask me for my papers or what race I am. Questions of identity or belonging were difficult, and I would answer, I don't know. (laughs) I'm first-generation French Catholic on my mother's side and barely third-generation Lithuanian Jew on my father's side. Does that make me an American? When I said that to my friend Kate Braystrip a few years ago, she paused And then she asked me if I believed in the words of the Declaration of Independence. Sure, I said. Say them then. She came right back at me. And I did, as she joined with me. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The founders of this nation may never have imagined how hard we would fight to define and redefine just two words, all men. So those unalienable rights would be extended to all people. But we are fighting. Are we fighting? Unitarians have been fighting a long fight. Remember that statement in 1863? We do insist that all men means all people, regardless of what gender they are, regardless of who they love, what color their skin is, what language they speak, what God they worship, or what God they don't worship. We hold these truths to be... Actually, I'd like to invite you, the choir, to say it with me. Say those words with me, please. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you believe those words, then you're an American, she said, as my eyes filled with tears. Today, I know I'm an American, not because of my passport or my social security number, not because I was born in Boston. I know I'm an American because of what I believe and because of what I give back to this country. What you believe about immigration matters. It matters a lot today, and I believe as a religious community we have a moral obligation to act and we have a religious obligation to act. What will you do when a church choir member can't go on the choir trip to Japan because he doesn't have the right passport? What will you do when a graduating senior in your youth group doesn't qualify for in-state tuition because she isn't a citizen. The day isn't far off. So I want to talk for just a second before I close about what you actually can do, what Hope Unitarian Church can do. You might consider starting an immigration alliance here at Hope, and then we could work together, all souls and hope, work together on helping kids in our own neighborhoods come out of the shadows and live with less fear At All Souls, our new social justice group, ASAGI, All Souls Alliance for Just Immigration, is staying informed about local and national legislation. We're going to keep learning and studying the issues. We've already begun helping with voter registration drives. Just yesterday, some of us were out working to help youth who might qualify for Obama's new plan, process, and fill out their paperwork. Some of you may want to learn Spanish. Some of you may already know Spanish and want to teach Spanish. Perhaps others will want to write letters to and visit people being held in detention here in Tulsa. We have people being held in detention here in Tulsa. And there are opportunities to teach English to people studying to become citizens. Actually, just this morning, I got an email all about that. <laughs> Many people in our community who want to improve their English language skills and want help. And there's a training at a library in September. And even if none of that appeals to you, you can simply start by telling each other your stories How did you come to be an American, and what does it mean to you? How can you give back to a country that's given you the gift, the tremendous gift of citizenship, with all its rights and all its responsibilities? As we reflect together on what's possible and what great sacrifices were made so we could live in this country with so many freedoms, as we remember where we came from, May we be bold enough to welcome those who are still on their way, opening our doors to the stranger in our midst, extending a hand to those who have been forgotten. And as we open our doors to those who still need to hide some part, any part of their identity in order to survive, may we remember that each time one of us dares to tell the truth about who we are, and it's taken me a long time, to dare to tell the truth about who I am, it makes it possible for another person to step out of the shadows and into the light. As Americans, it's our responsibility to recognize, honor, and celebrate the complex nature of what it means to be an American and to make sure that no one who believes in freedom and is willing to work hard for justice is denied their full civil and human rights. Our faith is a faith founded upon the principles of courage, connection, and compassion for all, it's we the people who decide together what it means to be an American. It's we the people who decide how to take the I out of illegal. And it's we the people who decide now is the time to treat all members of the human race with dignity and respect. Larry's now going to join us in song, to lead us in song.